0: On today's episode, we talk pharmacogenomics. Hope you enjoy. Hello everyone, this is RX Radio. I'm your host, Richard Waith. I'm really excited about today's episode because we're going to be talking about kind of current state of the union now with pharmacogenetics and the future. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Adriana Kekich. How's it going?
1: Good, Richard. How are you? And thank you, by the way, for the invite. I appreciate it.
0: No problem at all. Thank you so much for for being on here. I really do appreciate you taking the time uh, to do this with us. So um, we have a lot to talk about today. um, But before we dive into some of the deeper questions um, about your role, um, your experience in pharmacogenomics, and what you're doing at the Mayo Clinic, um, first start by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself
1: sure and my pleasure actually so my pharmacy journey started in 1995 Uh, my very first class in pharmacy school was biology and human genetics and i gotta tell you it was a love at the first page and that's where the idea of this personalized medicine really uh, started to kind of grow and uh, i was in a third year of pharmacy school when my family and i moved to united states following um, a civil war we had in in my former country, home country, Yugoslavia. And I was um, actually very lucky to be able to continue pharmacy school education, having graduated from Midwestern University in 2004. And during this time, being in pharmacy school like many of us do, I was also working, so I was a pharmacy intern. And um, at that time, my focus shifted to more clinical space. Um, I worked in a community pharmacy, and uh, that opened my eyes to scope and impact of medication interventions on patients' lives. And uh, I saw that uh, as a pharmacist, as being this most accessible healthcare provider, um, I saw the impact that uh, my, my fellow pharmacists were making uh, in contributions really to their uh, not only acute, but really chronic disease management as well. And that truly inspired me, that kind of imprinted on me uh, in, in moving forward. So community pharmacy in general holds a very dear place in my heart for several reasons. And I think some of them are, are even more relevant today um, in in this ever-changing terrain of pharmacy as a, as a discipline and as a profession. And some of the lessons uh, that I kind of reflect back on, and con- they continue to follow me on this journey as well, are value of building and bridging relationships with patients, physicians, healthcare um, for, you know, providers, and as you know, with the greater community as well, um, as well as uh, challenges and rewards of uh, participating on top of pharmacy license. And I remember the early days, it was all about, you know, immunizations and uh, medication therapy management, which added that uh, additional fuel to my uh, fire on being on, uh, you know, on the right path in a way, uh, choosing a pharmacy as my my career choice. And so I was also very lucky to have a very supportive team around me uh, and a forward-thinking team as well, leadership team, that is, at the time. And so I was able to um, implement some of the clinical services related to mental health components, for example, Um, you know, we administered um, long-acting antipsychotics to patients with with uh, mental disorders, and so on. And um, I would say that the two key lanes on this this path were really, and uh, this path of advancing whether the pharmacy practice for me have been dedication to personalizing medication outcomes and continuous professional development and education, be it you know related to pharmacy education, genetics in general, social studies, and so on um, and I would highly always uh, you know encourage students who who rotated at me at, the, uh, at that time and even at this time to kind of expand on their thinking, uh, maybe take online classes related to not just core pharmacy activities but uh, other ones that are supportive of of pharmacy as a, as a profession. And a lot of what I have done, <laughs> uh, especially in, in the last maybe 10 years or so, were really learning about uh, things that were happening in genomic space with AI, uh, kind of evolution and evolution taking place, um, you know, many precision medicine conferences taking place. So I was really um, uh, keenly aware of those and trying to participate in many of them. And that's ultimately what led me to this uh, current position, current role.
0: So I think it's great to hear that you kind of have that that foundation in community pharmacy. Would you say that it's, you know, a lot of the things you do now, it's like you you envision kind of almost kind of creating the future of what you hope for community pharmacy to be like, um, you know, in times to come?
1: That is exactly right, because I mentioned the medication therapy management, um, and I currently in this role, uh, I still do medication therapy management. And so the role of the pharmacist as this patient advocate early on, understanding that early on, this was um, a kind of a key component in, in building relationship with patients and then, of course, bridging relationships with providers and their greater healthcare team was actually crucial. And adding these elements, I oftentimes say, you know, like pharmacogenomics that I currently do is pharmacology and steroids. And I, I definitely uh, would say that medication therapy management was one platform where that pharmacology knowledge became really uh, crucial.
0: That makes so much sense. Now I think you mentioned, you know, students rotating with you and I think you currently have a student you mentioned before we hopped on the call, on the call here starting to record that you you currently have a student rotating with you now. So tell the listeners what is it like to rotate um with you and 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 your role at the uh the Mayo Clinic.
1: Yeah, I currently have a student uh who is an APPE student from Midwestern University here. In Glendale, Arizona. His name is Ricky Burnett. He's more than welcome to comment uh, uh, if he would like. Uh, but this is typically what I hear from students uh, the rotation experience is usually humbling, it's fascinating, uh, it's intellectually challenging, uh, inspiring, it's collegial in its nature and supportive. And I would say, Richard, that above all, um, you always hear the word transformative. And so I would say that every experience in a way that you're exposed to in life really depends on the depth of perception that you either created or you continue to create as you go along. And uh, if you ask me logistically what the experience uh, looks like, well, We provide a general syllabus uh, with weekly and daily core activities and, of course, suggested activities. Um, I work very closely with students and I encourage them from day one uh, to communicate their goals and objectives uh, during the orientation week especially. And then we work closely together in creating their personalized roadmap uh, of um, experiential learning success. And this is a very multidisciplinary uh, rotation site, and it's a very forward-thinking practice. And I would say they definitely have exposure, um, exposure really, and ability to practice or see how the practice is done uh, by integrating uh, three major shields, and that is the clinical practice shield, education, and research shield as well. Um, so I guess if I had to use the other descriptive phrase, it would be uh, rotation experience here would be all-encompassing and integrative.
0: I mean, I would love to, if, if uh, I think Ricky you said the student was, I would love to hear some thoughts or what it's been like, or if, if you want yeah, to chime see. in.
1: Yeah, let me turn this over to him.
2: Yes, hello. So it's been a great experience. Um, Adriana has been a wonderful preceptor, and this this. Ro- site has really exceeded my expectations. Um, Thus far, we've had an MTM focus, and I've been doing um, some research on my own time to really explore pharmacogenomics with Adriana's help. Um, It's been great. We actually get to travel between several different locations and get to meet face-to-face with patients in consultation rooms at these different sites. So... Do you have any specific questions for me?
0: I mean, I'd love to know, you know, if if there's if you have like a favorite part about it or, you know, some key learnings, um, maybe some advice that you'd give to another student that was looking towards uh, uh, doing a rotation there um, from a student perspective. If you have any, that'd be I think that'd be cool.
2: Yeah, sure. So the advice I would give to any student that did this rotation is um, to be self-driven and to really take it upon yourself to follow through on any assignments you're assigned. Um, and I, I would suggest before even getting this rotation to, to, to seek it out because I think it's a valuable rotation to have. And I've already told several of my uh, peers that this would be a good rotation for them if, if they had the opportunity to have. Um, as far as other advice, perhaps just, um, Obviously, the the general things that all students should have is positive attitude and um, open-mindedness. I'm seeing a lot of things here that I did not expect to see, um, specifically pharmacogenomics and um, just the disease states. There's a wide array of disease states that I've already got to see firsthand.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I, I don't want to let you steal the show too much here, so <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get back to... Uh, uh, to talk to, to Adriana um, about, so about her role. But thank you so much for for your input. Really appreciate it. Um, I, I'm actually going to be starting a rotation with VUCA Health this year. So um, listening to both of you guys' comments, I think, is helpful for me as well as someone that's going to be um, a new preceptor with uh, with a new program around digital health. So, um, so thank you guys for that. I appreciate it.
1: That is great. Thank you.
0: All right. So um, Adriana what yep. what's your what's your role like there um what is it that you are are doing um, uh, primarily at the mayo clinic
1: so That's a really good question. (laughs) I often semi-jokingly say that my full focus is really about the drugs and genes and everything else in between that can (laughs) affect patient outcomes. Um, So just to maybe bring us to the uh, kind of uh, um, to the same understanding here. So my current role is a pharmacogen, I'm a full-time pharmacogenomic pharmacist. I'm currently the only one right now at at the Arizona campus, although I work very closely and collaboratively with my colleagues in Rochester and Florida. Um, we have very open and receptive, you know, collegial settings, so that makes things much, much easier in terms of idea uh, exchanging and so on. I'm also an assistant program director to outpatient pharmacy education, so uh, my other love, obviously, is uh, really commitment to pharmacy education uh, and and other, I guess, intercepts on on uh, that would affect uh, uh, pharmacy education. So. The <laughs> There are, in a way, uh, how I transitioned into this role, I think that the the basis or foundation was really being uh, given an opportunity to practice in this dynamic, uh, innovative, as I mentioned already, kind of forward-thinking and collegial setting. Uh, My life's motto, as I'm sure you will appreciate, is challenge and support. So give me challenge and provide me support, and uh, I I will uh, excel. And so I definitely have plenty of that uh, in this role. And I would say the second focus for me has always really been personalizing medication outcomes, and that really has been my uh, focus for the past uh, two decades. So pharmacogenomics role is, in a way, an organic was. Really, an organic next step in delivering that while practicing on top of my license. So if you ask me, if your question maybe is more, what do I do on a day-to-day basis?
0: Yeah, I would love to know that as well. That was actually going to be my next question. <laughs> what what you, you show up to work, it's 9 a.m., possibly 8.30 a.m., or even 10 a.m., who knows? But what, what is it <laughs> when you first get to the office, what does your day start like and what does the rest of the day look like for you?
1: Sure. Well, I'm an early riser, so my day starts usually around 5, 5.30 a.m., wow. and I do not go to office at that time, um, but I do actually try to kind of, um, my day in a way is for most of us anyway, it starts the night before, so it's kind of like outlining the agenda for the day, uh, in a way listing your, your veggies to eat first that morning, uh, work veggies that is, and so on. So no two days are truly alike, and that is the part that I absolutely love. Uh, but some of the core activities, I would say, would be related to providing a direct patient care um, via pharmacogenomic consults. We do a lot of face-to-face consults. A lot of these patients are referred because of a variety of different reasons, but Some of the top ones would be, say, polypharmacy, uh, medication intolerance especially. We definitely see some gender uh, differences when it comes to medication intolerances in certain disease states and so on. So usually I see referrals for complex patients. Although, Richard, I got to tell you, the terrain is changing, so we're starting to see some movement into more preemptive uh, PGX consult space. So that's one part of it, and the second large part of the day is really dedicated to several things. So I can spend a day, uh, spend part of the day that is, in supporting uh, research growth here in Arizona. Uh, We have several ongoing PGX-based research studies. I um, usually provide assessment and recommendations uh, regarding those, but I also focus that uh, try to to. In a way, find time to foster collaborations for other pharmacogenomic-driven uh, studies or projects. Uh, especially because my area of interest is related to psychotropics and this gender inequality, and kind of layering other omics to to uh, to basic genomics. When it comes to uh, these PGx-driven consults, uh, we certainly have many areas of. of opportunities in terms of collaboration. So that's definitely exciting for me. And of course, you know, there are daily meetings, uh, presentations, anything from pharmacogenomic round when we do patient discussion or patient case discussions with my colleagues or maybe grand round presentations uh, that I might do in different specialty areas, lunch and learns with providers, which I absolutely love. Um, and if I have a student during the time that I do um, lectures, I will invite them also to, to shadow me during that time, uh, to kind of give them an opportunity to have some, to exchange maybe some ideas or, or thoughts and feedbacks with uh, their medical student colleagues. Um, so yeah, it's eclectic.
0: Yeah. And you, you mentioned uh, you might get referrals at some points for, uh, for, for complex patients or, or uh, potentially preemptive. Now, what is that normally like? Is it where you're communicating with another healthcare professional um, about a patient case or are you interacting with some of these patients directly? Give me some insight into what that's like if you do get a referral um, for you to handle a patient case.
1: Yeah, so that's actually a really good question you're asking. And there are many uh, paths in a way that a patient ultimately can be referred to pharmacogenomic consult, for example. I would say, uh, so far, the majority of patient referrals I get are by providers themselves. So in other words, a provider might have a patient who has either complex medication or medical history um, or may have polypharmacy with some medication intolerances and sensitivities that are not necessarily explained by taking in consideration like the liver or kidney function or age uh, or drug-drug even interactions and so on. So they're kind of looking maybe for a deeper understanding what might be driving some of those uh, medication resistance. results or outcomes so that is one avenue i will tell you that what we also see is it's not unusual that a patient will come in come in to a consult with a family member and during the consult um that the family member or members are oftentimes inspired with what they have heard uh, that, or seen unfold that I, I, in two weeks from that consult, I actually might have uh, several family members who will come in for their own pharmacogenomic uh, you know, uh, consults because they find value in the information and knowledge given to them uh, regarding this interplay of drugs and genes. So this would be more of an example of maybe like preemptive uh, prescribing for some of these patients and many of the colleagues my pharmacy colleagues will identify patients who might be discharged from a hospital or have questions that are related to maybe some unusual medication experiences in which case they reach out and I'll make a a contact with the provider uh, have a discussion and find out if this patient would indeed be a good candidate for PGX testing. I hope this explains, or maybe provides some insight as to uh, what you were asking.
0: I think I think that was definitely pretty clear. Um, one one deeper question I, I do have is, and I don't know if uh, you know if this is something that you can answer or not. But is it only these referrals come from only internally in the Mayo uh, Clinic health system, or are you getting external referrals as well?
2: So.
1: Excellent follow up question. I would say here's how I'm going to answer both. We definitely have interest generated from internal and external sources. Right now I am seeing primarily patients who are Mayo patients, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. All right. So let's talk to, I remember when I was in pharmacy school, um, I think there was still a. It was still kind of like a, an afterthought in terms of looking at PGx and pharmacogenomics because we just weren't. You know, we we didn't have a lot of knowledge as to how a lot of it worked, or uh, there was not really a lot of business models in place uh, to be able to take action on it. So maybe talk to the pharmacist that's you know been out of school for over five or ten years that didn't really learn about pharmacogenomics at the current level it's at now. Um, talk to us a little bit about what the current state of that of the industry looks like and, and kind of give them like an overview um, as to where pharmacogenomic, pharmacogenomics is now.
1: Yeah. So this is a question that I definitely get asked a lot. Um, I would say, first of all, I would ask, you know, what is the basic uh, understanding of what pharmacology to them really means? And I would say the general assessment would be that the pharmacogenomics is really um, a tool that is used within the precision medicine um, or personalized medicine, let's say, uh, as a more broad term, that looks at the genetic, how genetic variations can affect medication outcomes. And these genetic variations, obviously, um, for, for pharmacists especially who are very, very uh, in, intimately kind of um, uh, familiar with pharmacology, you obviously have two uh, major factors, and that is your pharmacokinetic genes of interest and pharmacodynamic genes of interest. So that's kind of what we, uh, in a way, do. We analyze how that can impact a patient's medication outcome or response. So what's currently going on in this space? I would say that there is a rapid growth um, in terms of um, sequencing. Uh, we're kind of moving away from genotype to more next-generation sequencing. Um, so there is ra- rapid growth really happening within the uh, technologies, Right. But there is still a snail' speed when it comes to implementation and also reimbursement of pharmacogenomic testing and consults. So oftentimes, Richard, when I meet with patients, especially if patients are referred for medication intolerances, they at the end of the consult, they'll say, "I was validated." um in sense that there are some genetic variations that indeed have explained uh, their medication experience so they feel a sense of validation and this is especially I would say this is especially seen in arenas such as you know pain management uh, psychotropic medication use and so on and they also feel hope and that's oftentimes this you know tagline of hope and and feeling validated effect is the tagline that I use when I speak to my uh, fellow pharmacists how I see the pharmacogenomics being used um, or applied in this pharmacy space, I think pharmacists as drug experts are really in the prime seat should be truly being a driver's seat in terms of driving the pharmacogenomics uh, implementation and application. So, what I I guess I'm communicating here is um, I would encourage anybody interested to to really uh, maybe explore education and and look at some of the implementation models that have been already rolled out. Um, And I guess another... Another thing is uh, I would say that we're moving away from this genetic exceptionalism, and that is that we're no longer in the space or less so in the space that this genetic testing is now viewed differently than any other clinical tool testing. So uh, it's just an additional tool, really, to individualize patient care outcomes, and pharmacists are in, uh, in, in prime position to, to, drive that, uh, to drive that process
0: you know i never really thought about it being different you know as you know you look at a regular cbc panel um you know about how how that could be different from utilizing a pharmacogenomics panel now yeah. it what is that testing like though is it is it the same thing that the you know some of these consumer products are using to test or is there more advanced testing that happens in the clinical setting like at mayo clinic
1: Yes, there is definitely more advanced testing because it's actually a clinical testing, and that's the differentiation between the two, at least at this point in time. So I'll give you an example. Um, in uh, At least this, this is an example that I um, oftentimes would share in terms of what I see in my practice. So we work with um a couple of different, at least, uh, testing platforms, uh, pharmacogenomic testing platforms, including the uh, one of our internal ones. And so those genes that are included on those testing platforms are very carefully selected because they have something significant to do with medication, either metabolism or medication outcomes. And those genes are actually combination genes of either pharmacokinetics or pharmacodynamics, uh, pharmacodynamic uh, uh, proteins or or enzymes. And so it's, uh, when I said they're carefully selected, they're selected because um, there is a uh, correlation between those genes and potentially medications that have either uh, FDA labeling guidelines at this point, or a lot of times um, you will hear us refer to like CPIC guidelines, uh, which is a clinical implementation pharmacogenomic consortium uh, guidelines that ultimately look at the evidence and data that comes from different centers in United States and really around the world and say, what's the clinical utility behind this drug gene pair? And so therefore, the testings, testing, pharmacogenomic testing platforms that we use typically have that uh, embedded.
0: You had mentioned that there, there are challenges uh, to implementing, and you had said one of them is is reimbursement. Uh, is there, what other challenges is, are present in, in starting some of these programs or, may, or ha- helping these programs be successful? Um, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so I think uh, successfully implementing pharmacogenomic uh, p- testing and, and uh, recommendations, assessments, and so on into your routine clinical practice uh, truly requires an efficient process uh, to not only order genetic tests, but also uh, how to properly report the results to clinicians and patients and um, you kind of think about some longitudinal effects to their care as well. So I would single out probably one of the most significant uh, contributors to still is lack of standardized approaches and terminology in clinical labo- laboratory processes uh, or process ordering I should say uh, of that test and then of course the second layer to that would be reporting of the test results because ultimately all of this can, uh, can influence and impede the, the, the proper workflow uh, there is actually a really good uh, paper that for those listeners who are interested in learning more about this uh, written by Uh, are Dr. Moyer and Dr. Uh, Caraballo, who wrote about the challenges really in implementing pharmacogenomic testing. So they kind of talk about some of the things that I just uh, mentioned. And I would say some of the areas that they really um, uh, talk about that I also can uh, attest to would be having more collaborative efforts among laboratories in terms of needing to improve uh, standardization of testing and reporting of the results. I'll give you one example. So as a pharmacist, we oftentimes think about like these CYP enzymes. They're, you know, drug metabolizing enzymes, CYP enzymes being incredibly important. CYP2D6 metabolizes about a quarter of all medications. Well, CYP2D6 is a gene. Is incredibly heterogene- it's a highly polymorphic gene, meaning there are many genetic variants that you may have across populations. So some of us are, you know, normal metabolizers because of that, but many of us could fall somewhere between poor to ultra rapid metabolizer phenotypes. And so the problem with reporting is, you might have a lab that reports of cyp 2 d 2 Sub2D6, uh, a genotype, Starlil1, Starlil41, as an intermediate metabolizer, but you might have some other labs that are reporting that as a normal metabolizer. And as you can imagine, uh, this also can affect our assessment in terms of what we would recommend for medications that are metabolized through this pathway, uh, based on that that phenotype, being a normal or an intermediate metabolizer. So this has been an obstacle for me in my day-to-day. Uh, there are many good resources out there that, uh, that, you know, clinicians can use. I would say kind of moving away from that, then clinicians still need educational opportunities uh, to improve understanding on, of not only which test to order, but also how to interpret the results. And I think this is still a huge area uh, that, of interest and so, um, we are definitely seeing some improvements in this space. There are more, for example, pharmacogenomic uh, courses. Uh, there are online courses. Um, for those listeners who are interested in learning more about this, we actually will have an online course um, available, hopefully, in the month of September of this year, 2019, for those who are interested in really clinical applications of pharmacogenomic testing in their, uh, at their practice sites. And I mean, Richard, we can talk about this probably yeah. <laughs> a long time, So I'm going to pause here.
0: Well, you have so, you have so much expertise. I'm sure we can go you know hours on. But uh, you had mentioned increasing our understanding um, of uh, pharmacogenomics, and and from from a clinical standpoint, and it leads me to a, an interesting segue. And uh, before I ask the question, I'm going to I'm going to kind of set a stage to relate it back to something I understand, which is uh, well, I understand a little bit, which is how. Neural networks work uh, within within the Tesla drive self-driving chips. Right. So Tesla oh, yeah. has cars that are, um, you know, that can essentially drive itself. But what's really interesting about how these uh, how the Tesla um, AI works is that there's this huge neural network that is basically taking the, the road mapping and recordings of every Tesla on the road. Um, basically, every test on the road right now is mapping out everywhere it drives and is reading everything around it and feeding it into this neural network that allows cars to drive itself better. Now, would you say that there is a similar aspect to that in terms of pharmacogenomics and genetic testing where the more people that are that are kind of getting their gene sequenced or, or getting tested for um, basically donating samples of their genes... Does that provide for a bigger sample from us to be able to like make decisions off of clinically? Is there like a, a benefit for more people to go out there and just do the test, even if they don't really don't want to, they should just do it for the benefit of of um, advancing healthcare.
1: Yes, uh, Richard, you're using actually a really good example uh, uh, to make a, an excellent point. Um, I oftentimes think of, especially earlier on, uh, maybe a couple of years back, even as this um, pharmacogenomic is a tool within precision medicine, uh, which is all great, um, and we are all kind of supportive of it and whatnot. But I oftentimes thought of it that the precision medicine in general was still predominantly focused uh, is uh, focused. Uh, On oncology care, righteously so, oncology uh, agents. And they got incredibly, uh, they they got some really great advances in terms of their predictive models. Um, But it was also predominantly white. So a lot of these studies that would come through in terms of genotyping and so on were really for uh, Caucasian patients, sometimes for some Asian patients and so on. So the importance of of better data and better data integration cannot be under cannot be overstated I guess Um, And so what you're speaking of is AI is absolutely used in this space. You know, we're kind of working – we have some projects, actually, where we're combining maybe some AI and deep machine learning and so on to really design better predictive models. The more of us get the genotypes, and it's actually not even genotyping. I think we should be really discussing more of the next generation sequencing or at least sequencing because – and let me make a distinction. The genotyping really refers to the fact that you're scanning for already known genetic variants. Okay. With the sequencing, you have ability really to scan for the variants that may not have been discovered yet. And that's the beauty of getting more information and integrating more data in better predictive models.
0: It's very interesting. Create better predictive
1: models. So, yes. I I kind of agree to what you have said, and I'm a huge proponent of, of kind of driving that process forward.
0: Okay, so everyone go do a gene test. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I'm just <laughs> <laughs> my take or my ask would be uh well right now maybe not so much but ultimately my task, my ask would be do the whole genome sequencing ultimately yeah. um i mean there are many obviously uh, some you know logistical obstacles to that right now especially the integration into the electronic health system and we definitely need uh, more effective and efficient platforms when it comes to that but um Yes. The
0: short answer is yes. Nice. All right. Uh, So to wrap up here, just got a couple more questions for you. Uh, What is the most, what are you most excited for about the future of pharmacogenomics? I know we talked about a lot of things and a lot of benefits that come out of it, but is there anything in the pipeline that you think is really interesting that you're really excited about um, in, in the industry of pharmacogenomics?
1: Yeah, so I will speak from, from. this is going to be a very biased take, uh, so take what I'm saying with a grain of salt in a way, uh, but here is kind of what I'm excited about, and this, this is definitely some of the trends that I'm seeing. I'm excited about uh, really entering the space of more preemptive prescribing, or excuse me, preemptive testing for preemptive prescribing, that is, where the results are already available for a physician or a prescriber in EHR where there is really no delay uh, or further delay to patient's care by selecting medication therapy uh, by doing what we're doing right now. So basically minimizing trial and error prescribing by this more preemptive uh, testing taking place. That's number one. I already kind of <laughs> talked about moving away from genotyping to more uh you know, next generation sequencing. So I think that's already taking place. It's already happening. The part that I am incredibly excited about, and I think that's the, in a way, the the trend that we're we are seeing already, but it's going to be explored further. Is going to really be this integration of other omics. So you know, metabolomics, uh, which is essentially you know studying the metabolites. You know, psychiatry is a perfect example of something like that. Uh, And then, of course, adding proteomics, uh, microbiomics, uh, and all of these other omics. You just said a bunch
0: of words I've never heard before. So (laughs) that's awesome.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, but, you know, essentially what I'm saying with that is right now we're very focused on genomic data. And oftentimes when I meet with a patient or when I talk to my colleagues, I I will point out to to the following. And that is pharmacogenomic testing will give you, in a way, your baseline, um, you know, kind of things that you're born with, right? Um, You have a particular expression of a CYP2D6 gene, for example. That's your genotype. But there are many other things that can affect your phenotypic expression of that gene. You know, if you're a female, we know that there is a huge gender uh, inequality when it comes to expression of certain enzymes or genes, I should say, really. Um, Like CYP2D6 is a prime example. We know that uh, for female patients, when they get pregnant, CYP2D6 enzyme gets induced. So uh, in terms of the phenotype, patient is no longer a normal metabolizer if they were prior, based on the genotype, but they now have converted to a rapid or an ultra-rapid metabolizer. And of course, Richard, you know this This is a concept of phenoconversion, and you know this more intuitively by kind of thinking about drug-drug interactions. That's in a way what I'm really uh, talking about here, how other drugs or other external and internal factors can really influence uh, patients' phenotypes and ultimately truly influence medication outcomes gut plays a huge role. So therefore microbiome or, or in a way, you know, these, um, majority of us is truly not us, but rather microbial, uh, mm-hmm. in terms of genetic information. So obviously that's going to play a role as well. So I'm really excited to see there is more focus being placed on these other omics besides the genomics.
0: That's awesome. And what would you say are really good resources, uh, for people that, are interested in the space, uh, which obviously, if if they're still a student, they're probably going to learn a a lot about this in school and certain certain curriculums. But what about the pharmacists that are not in school or or haven't taken any sort of courses? What are some really good um, resources that they can go to? And and I'll definitely try to make sure I include anything that you mentioned. I'll include any of those links in the show notes for people that that want to um, go and look at those later.
1: Yeah, great question, and I'll be happy to maybe share um, in a written format as to what uh, I typically use or fall back to in my day-to-day. But some great resources would be the pharmacogenomic knowledge base, um, farmgkb.org. PharmVar is a pharmacogenomic variant, Uh, so if there are particular variants that they're working with and they need to find more information, they can uh, use that. There's there are some guideline bodies such as a Cpic that I mentioned um Dutch Pharmacist Working Group in Europe also plays a huge role, sometimes uh, providing direction for for medications, obviously, that we use here as well. Those are all really great uh, resources. And I got to tell you, I still go back to what I said originally. Pharmacogenomics is pharmacology on steroids. If there is one um, bit of advice that I would share, and that is get to really know your pharmacology well. So what I use in my day-to-day would be like up-to-date, micromedics, because I need to have a quick reference or quick glance at metabolic pathways of the drugs that I'm working with. Uh, But I'll be happy to share some other ones. And of course, I cannot underestimate or um, not underestimate whether I cannot speak more of uh, PubMed uh, as the go-to in terms of looking at the studies. Uh, This, of course, is a bit more time consuming, but it's absolutely essential.
0: Yeah, those are great resources. And I'll definitely make sure anything that you share with me, I'll put in the show notes for people to take a look at later okay bonus question if you had to take someone out to dinner and that person had to be famous which means they should have a wikipedia page who would that person be they still have to be alive by the way who would that person be and why and you cannot pick any of the presidents or their wives (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: did you say that person does or does not have to be alive they
0: do they do have to be alive today
1: oh and they have to be famous they have to be famous. Yeah, or and, have
0: a Wikipedia page.
1: I would say, okay, this is an off, uh, off the wall one, but Tom Waits. <laughs> Tom why? Waits. Tom, this has nothing to do with pharmacogenomics. This has to do with other parts of, of uh, my, I guess, my personality. That's why-
0: that's why I love this question. I, I yeah. can't wait to hear why.
1: <laughs> Tom Waits is an incredibly talented and creative uh, musician who is non-conventional. And I love his non-conventional approach to life, to music. Uh, and that's kind of his philosophy. So I love people who really um, you know, play music to their own uh, drum beats. I don't even know if that's a saying, but I'm yeah. saying it's now I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I love people that have this sense of, of character and integrity that they kind of uh, uh, stay uh, original and uh, rather stay true to throughout life.
0: That's great. I hope more people take That's that cute. lesson of life.
1: I'm turning uh, turning it over to you. I just uh, was wondering, wondering, how about you?
0: Okay, if, if I had to take someone out to dinner, uh, and, and I feel like I have to start coming up with like different... Uh, answers for you know if, if for different people to ask me but one person I would definitely definitely want to take out to dinner would be Elon Musk I would I have so much <laughs> questions for him around uh, not only you know Tesla and and kind of what he's doing with SpaceX but I've recently started diving into understanding uh, his new company Neuralink which is essentially creating a, a brain machine interface that can you know put chips into the brain and Allow people that are either, you know, quadriplegic to do things or people who are blind to see again and um, interfacing, you know, the entire Internet with uh, with your brain, I think is quite wild and interesting. And I have a lot of questions for him. So he would be the person that would take.
1: I have a follow up to that. I would say I would definitely kindly ask you to invite me to that dinner because. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for many reasons of course but I got to tell you the the neurocognition is a huge area of of uh you know interest outside of the, the the work zone in a way for me and I think we're definitely entering a space where uh this is uh, going to be seismic potentially uh, in time to come in maybe even short time to come.
0: Yeah, it's going to be really really interesting. I'm excited to see how it's going to turn out. All awesome. right. Awesome. Well, how can people connect with you if they want to reach back out um after the after the uh, episode
1: Oh, uh, simply uh, look me up on LinkedIn. That's probably the best uh, and easiest way to connect. Uh, so uh, Adriana Kekic, you can Google LinkedIn Adriana Kekic and uh, there I will come.
0: Perfect. And I will definitely include that link in the show notes below. Adriana, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. We really do appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure. And I just wanted to recognize Ricky once again, uh, and I appreciate his contribution and commentary as well.
0: Yes. Thanks, Ricky. We appreciate you. you. Thank you. So I feel so much smarter when it comes to pharmacogenomics now after that conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Do not forget, uh, I will be including any of the resources that she provides me. I will include that in the show notes. Um, So if you want to go back and, and check any of that out, please connect on any of your favorite social media platforms. I'd love to know what you thought about the episode. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have a great rest of your day.